If you've ever watched the State of the Union address given by the president, you may know that at some point in his speech, uh, he will often point to the balcony and introduce just an ordinary citizen, but he has done something to make them a real hero. Just this week, uh, Brandon Say was uh, um, recognized in Biden's speech as the one who stopped and disarmed the Monterey gunmen at the end of January. But that custom actually began uh, way back with President Ronald Reagan, introducing a man named Lenny Skutnik. And to this day, uh, reporters will ask the presidential aides the question prior to their speeches, you know, who are the the, uh, Skutniks this year? You know, who are the heroes? Who are the people that we will be recognizing? Uh, And the reason that his name has become synonymous with these kind of heroic actions is because uh, Lenny Skutnik was a federal worker just walking down the street Uh, when Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac River. Uh, Several passengers were thrown into the icy river, and of course, rescue efforts were quickly underway. A a helicopter came by, uh, dropping down ropes and and ropes and pulling people up one at a time, one at a time. And uh, yet there was this one lady in the water who was struggling to grab the the ladder. She is becoming so cold and so uh, frozen, you know, hypothermia was setting in that she couldn't lift her arms out of the water to grab the rope, and it looked like she was going to drown. And so everyone on the bridge was, of course, yelling encouragements to her and, 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 uh, and, and cheering her on that she could do this, but Lenny Skutnik broke through the police barricade, jumped into the river, uh, risking his own life, and pulled that lady to shore, who otherwise would have drowned. And so the president of the United States that year called him a hero. I think many others would go on to call him and others like him good Samaritans. We're in our second week of a series we began uh, called Contrast, looking at very different characters and a story that Jesus told today in Luke chapter 10. Of all the parables, all the stories that Jesus told, uh, along with perhaps the prodigal son, Uh, I think maybe the most famous is this story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, It's so ubiquitous with this idea of helping other people that there are laws called Good Samaritan laws. There is uh, a sense in which even people who haven't grown up in church or don't go to church probably know something about this phrase, the Good Samaritan. But it's a story that begins uh, with a, a lawyer, an expert in the religious law, asking a good question. Uh, with kind of a bad motive. We see in Luke 10, Jesus' kingdom message is beginning uh, to take root. More and more people are following him. More and more people are wondering about this message that he is teaching, that he has come to bring this kingdom. He has come to bring them eternal life. And people want to know what that takes. And so even some of the religious leaders begin to ask and find out if they're on the same page as Jesus. And so today in Luke 10, verse 25, we see this interchange. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He, the lawyer, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Here's this, like I said, this lawyer, this teacher, this religious leader, an expert in law, approaching Jesus. Uh, And as he often does, Jesus meets this man's question with a question of his own. You know, what is written in the law? 
And the man answers well. He kind of gives this formulaic response to this question. Jesus would often give this question, uh, th- give this answer previous in other places in his ministry when people ask him uh, to summarize the law. And all of it kind of boils down to this idea of love God and love others. And yet Jesus kind of gives him this gentle nudge. He says, you got the answer right, now just go and do it. And it's kind of like you know, when you watch Family Feud, you're everybody's like, good answer, good answer. But Jesus says, you're, you're not all the way there yet. Luke kind of gives us an insight, as he often does, to some of the motives of the man asking this question. It says he wanted to justify himself. In other words, I think what he's saying is, you know, the law says, love your neighbor. And so this man says, you know, who is my neighbor? And I think he wants to justify himself by defining neighbor on his own terms. If we can whittle down the field, if we can narrow down the field just enough, then I can still claim to love my neighbor. If, if we can define neighbor as someone who is an American or someone who is a Republican or a Democrat, or we can identify our neighbors as people who share our common interests, people I already like, then it becomes a lot easier to love our neighbors. And so this man is looking kind of for the minimum obedience required. And yet we know following Jesus requires total obedience. And so in response, Jesus tells this story. Many have called it one of the most powerful stories ever told. Just before this, in Luke's gospel, Jesus, uh, I think, sets up a contrast for us from uh, the passage before this and now the story he's about to tell. Jesus, before this, sends out his disciples in kind of this planned proclamation. You know, it's this organized initiative of proclaiming the gospel. He sends out his disciples to share this message ahead of Jesus' coming. And it comes with instructions and, and routes and duties. And you're to work in pairs and, and all these kind of stipulations. But I think now, in contrast, Jesus kind of tells this story about what about the opportunities where it's not planned? We'll kind of notice as we read through this story, this parable, there's a theme of inconvenience here. That sometimes the loving thing is not the convenient thing. It's not the easy thing to do. And so this morning, it's not my intent to analyze each and every detail of this parable, this story here, but instead to look at the importance of what Jesus is telling us about the opportunities that we have to love. And the first thing I think that he shows us is that the opportunities to love are inconveniently everywhere. Verse 30, it says this, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, He took pity on him. Jesus tells us a very important detail right up front. He says that this man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you were hearing this as Jesus' original audience, there might have been a company soundtrack that went, dun, dun, dun. You know, this is, people know what this means. Jaws music surrounded this phrase. This was not a, a follow the yellow brick road pass here. This particular road would have been, uh, this man would have been traveling, would have been nicknamed the Pass of Blood or the Way of Blood. 
It was 17 miles of road dropping nearly 3,000 feet in elevation, which means it was steep. It was strenuous. And not only that, but it's 17 miles of rocks and crevices and caves. Think dark alleys, places for bad men who want to do bad things to hide, to attack travelers on their way. And so we see this unfortunate traveler mugged. You know, they take his wallet, they take his keys, they take his phone, they whip out their switchblades and bats and beat and slash him to a pulp. You hear this story as a kid and you kind of uh, are led to picture a man with a you know, rather, rather sizable bump on his head. But no, they made this guy into hamburger meat. I mean, if you didn't check for a pulse, you'd swear he was dead. And so three men come along and I think Jesus uses specific language to highlight the inconvenience of it all. It says a priest happened to be going by. He passed by chance. A Levite came to this place, a Samaritan as he traveled. All of these men, as my mom would say, had places to go and people to see and things to do. But we also see that because of this, need is often inconvenient. If you're a parent, you know this. You, when you had young kids, never got thrown up at the end of the day when you were already going to bed, but when you're walking out the door on your way to work. You're, you're never running a fever when you have nothing to do. You know, some of the biggest needs often happen at the most inconvenient times. But it's not just that the needs here are inconvenienced, the, the needs are everywhere. We ourselves find ourselves, if we're looking, surrounded by people every day who find themselves half dead in ditches. Maybe not physically, maybe they're not mugged, but it's self-inflicted. Ditches of addiction, abuse, loneliness, pain. People who need our help, our love. And Jesus presents us with three responses to this need, three responses to this opportunity to love. And in each of them, we see a stark contrast. Now, we don't in our time have in the same way that they did priests and Levites and Samaritans in our culture. And so I wanted to kind of put them into our terms. The, the, the priest would have been in this situation kind of like you think of the preacher, the guy who, who does this service and he preaches the word and he prays the prayers. The Levite would have been the guy who serves communion, you know, assists in the service. He's kind of more than the average churchgoer, maybe like you think of a deacon. But then for a Samaritan, we, we don't really have an equal in our culture. This parable, even though it's not said in the text anywhere, is often called the parable of the good Samaritan. But, but for them, we would not have, they would have not thought of this man as good, and that's kind of the point. You know, good Samaritan is an oxymoron for them. It's kind of like the old computer program Microsoft Works. You know, it's just that they're not compatible. You know, Jesus' hearers would have been offended by this idea of a Samaritan hero. I mean, to put it as simply as we can, Jews and Samaritans just did not get along. Samaritans, uh, for the Jewish perspective, were considered kind of filthy half-breeds. Back in the Old Testament, when the Assyrians conquered the nation of Israel, the, the those who were left behind kind of intermingled with the uh, Assyrians and kind of intermarried with them. And so Samaritans were the result. They were kind of half Jewish, half pagan. And so looking at the law of God, they saw that they, most faithful Jews saw that you're not supposed to intermarry with the nations around you. And so Samaritans, like I said, were kind of viewed as these half-breeds. One Jewish writer, not in the Bible, says, Two nations my soul detests, and the third is not even a people. 
those who live in Seir and the Philistines and the foolish people that live in Samaria. He says, in my mind, the Samaritans are not even people. They disagreed on where they worshipped. Samaritans said the proper place to worship God was in Gerizim. Jews, of course, said it was in Jerusalem. And it's not long when you agree with someone's very identity that you begin to attack them. Attack them. And so for hundreds of years, they had been in small ways warring with each other. About a hundred years before Jesus, a Jewish leader named John Hyrcanus destroyed the Samaritan's temple. I mean, needless to say, it creates some bad blood when you burn someone's church down. And now, even here in Jesus' time, the Samaritans would attack and kill Galileans who were passing through on their way to worship in Jerusalem. And so all of this kind of bad blood, all of this kind of history is packaged into this, uh, this one word that Jesus says, Samaritan. And so the Samaritan, he comes upon this man whom the priest and the Levite had passed. And you would hardly think that he would stop to help. I mean, he could have so easily walked past like the other two. I mean, just let the man die. No one would have known, and, and certainly no one would have blamed him. But he saw a need that could not be ignored. All three men saw him, but only one took pity. Only one cared enough to let another's need change his plans and, and capture his heart. And like I said, every day there are those lying by the road, maybe not literally, but those who are in need of our love, crying and hurting and desperate as life slips away, needing someone to care. And we have the same response. We can ignore them, ignore their condition, or we can react to them and love them. It all comes down to taking the opportunity. I heard it said this way. I love the phrase. It says, a disciple of Jesus spends more time in ditches than on the roads to other places. But of course, the opportunities to love are not always easy. Not only are they inconveniently everywhere, distracting from the plans that we might have, but the opportunities to love are also inconveniently costly. Verse 34, Jesus continues the story. He says, He went to him, the Samaritan went to this man and banded his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, or two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Again, setting up the contrast, we see the priest and the Levite in this story. You know, they, they both saw the man. And so the question is, why would they walk away from him to the other side of the room? I mean, for them, showing love to this man would have been the natural response, the natural outpouring of the worship they had just come from. And yet it's too high a price. It's too inconveniently costly. For them, it's not a monetary price, but because they both worked in the temple, they had to be extra careful about their cleanliness. I'm not talking like shower and put deodorant on every day, but this is ceremonial cleanliness. Leviticus, back in the Old Testament, in their regulations for priests, said he, he must not enter a place where there is a dead body. Once they did, they would become unclean. And to rid themselves of this uncleanness, they have to shave their whole bodies and wash their clothes to be clean again. And anything they touched in the process would become unclean, and that would make anyone who touched that unclean. It's, it's just a whole big thing. Think of it as kind of cooking with raw chicken. I feel like I have to wear a hazmat suit every time I use raw chicken. You, like, you use the knife, you have to wash it. Wash your hands, take up the chicken. It's just this, it's this whole process. Some Pharisees even said that if your shadow touched 
a dead body, you are unclean. And so for the priest and the Levite to come across this man, they don't want to get it close enough to check it out. In fact, they, across, they cross on the other side of the road. Their, their shadow wouldn't even touch them. They can't take the risk. The cost is just too high. If they became unclean, opportunities of this day might disqualify them for participating in the more satisfying opportunities they imagined elsewhere. But I think that's why Jesus includes this very important detail. He says they were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And in case anyone thought these two men were being noble in their service to God, you know, remaining unclean for service in the temple, Jesus says they're coming back from Jerusalem. They're coming back from worship. They're coming home. The day was over. They had performed their priestly duties and they're heading away from Jerusalem. They wouldn't have to worry about being unable to perform their duties in the temple. But the bottom line is that it's just too high of a cost to help this man. To undergo this extensive cleaning ceremony, you know, get your, his blood and guts on your fancy dress clothes. I mean, he just got that tie for Priest Appreciation Month. You know, you can't, can't mess it up. Besides, you couldn't really even tell if he was alive or not. Even if he was, what quality of life might he have? It, it's probably best just to leave him. After all, it was robbers, not you that put him there. But then this Samaritan comes along. This bitter rival. And without even stopping to think about the cost, he sees a need. He didn't care that it would sacrifice his cleanliness. He didn't care if it sacrificed his finances. It would cost him two days' wages and might never receive a thank you. That the medical bills might still keep piling up. He didn't care that he would have to sacrifice comfort and to walk alongside as the man rode the donkey. He didn't care that he would tear up his own clothes for bandages, that even sacrifice, safety, and now he is unencumbered and slow and might also be mugged and robbed. No, the opportunities to show love are often costly, maybe inconveniently so. They will cost us time and energy and money and pain and pride. Nothing about love is easy. Nothing about love is cheap. Love is what cost Jesus his life. So what could we have that was possibly worth more than that? And that's exactly what it comes down to, this idea of worth, this final truth, that the opportunities to love are worth doing. The closing line, Jesus moves the story from the realm of the parabolic to the practical. Verse 36, he says to this lawyer, he says, Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. When the expert of the law asked this question of Jesus, Who is my neighbor? He was hoping to kind of narrow the scope. You know, what's, the, what's the minimal amount of people I can love and still be okay? But through the story, Jesus tells not about being okay. It's, it's not about just doing the bare minimum. But it's about helping those in need, no matter who, no matter where. The Samaritan didn't care if loving his neighbor made him unfit, unavailable, unclean for the opportunities of tomorrow. No, he, he chose to love. He chose to meet that need today. He didn't care that the mugged man was a Jew who hated him and had been maybe unjust to him in the past. 
He knew that love overcomes injustice. He didn't care that he would be risking his own treasures, his comfort, his cash, his plans. He knew that love never goes unrewarded. He didn't even care that the bills would keep piling up. So like I said, Jesus doesn't want us to leave this parable without it becoming practical. He says to this man, and I think he says to us, go and do likewise. Go and serve the needs that we see on the Jericho road of life. Get off the donkey and get into the ditch. When I think of this idea, I can't help but think of uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, If you know anything about Mother Teresa, you know that she devoted her life caring for those who are inflicted with leprosy in Calcutta. And after all of her years of helping these people, ministering to these people, putting her own health or her own uh, you know, plans and things you know, at risk and, uh, and, and being inconvenienced by this, she said this. She said, the biggest disease today is not leprosy or cancer. It's the feeling of being uncared for or unwanted of being deserted and alone. The greatest evil is the lack of love and charity and an indifference towards one's neighbor, who may be the victim of poverty or disease or exploited and at the end of his life left at a roadside. All of us have neighbors. Maybe not the people you know, who live next to you or in front of you or behind you, but all of us have people in our lives that need our help. The needs are inconveniently everywhere, inconveniently costly, but always worth doing. As we wrap up today, I I notice that, and speaking of contrast, we're kind of presented here with three philosophies of life, three contrasts from the characters in the story. We have the robbers who selfishly say, you know, what's yours is mine. We have these religious leaders who say with dreadful justification, you know, what's mine is mine. And then we have this Samaritan who surprisingly says, what's mine is yours. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is that in light of this command from Jesus to go and do likewise, which philosophy will we adopt? Yours is mine, mine is mine, or mine is yours? I think the reason that Jesus can tell us go and do likewise is because he went and did likewise. That Jesus didn't leave this in the realm of a story that he told that that would impact others and just kind of put a nice bow on top of this whole love idea. No, Jesus went and said, what's mine is yours by giving up his very life. That when we couldn't help ourselves when we were dead, half dead in the ditch, in a situation we could not overcome. This is not a situation where we could kind of crawl out of the ditch and dust ourselves off and get on with life. This was a situation where only Jesus could save us. So Jesus came and gave up all he had, no matter the inconvenience, no matter the cost, to meet us in the ditch of our sin and restore us to health and life. So this morning, in light of this, I want to offer that invitation to let Jesus do that in your life. Maybe you've made this decision before, but if you haven't, if you're still half dead in the sin, in the ditch of sin, then I want to encourage you this morning to let what Jesus has done for you become the defining matter of your life. 
but allow Him to become Lord and Savior. To allow Him to show you the better way of life, of living and loving when it's inconvenient, because that's what He did for us. For others of you that have already made that commitment and follow Jesus as Lord, but I think what is crystal clear to us is this call of Jesus to go and do likewise, to go and show mercy to those who need it. Not to look for the bare minimum of obedience, of getting by, but to be serious and committed to meeting needs and showing love no matter what the inconvenience, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the ways that he teaches us to show us who we should be as his people. God, we look and see if we're looking closely needs and opportunities around us every single day, and more often than not, we either intentionally or unintentionally turn a blind eye toward them. And so, God, I want to first pray that your Spirit at work within us would open our eyes to see the opportunities where we can love others in a way that has kingdom impact. God, sometimes it doesn't even look like those who are hurting are hurting. Maybe it comes across in arrogance. Maybe it comes across in anger. Maybe it comes across in tears. And we're kind of maybe prone to push away from those people. But, God, you're calling us to draw closer to check the pulse, to be life bringers. God, I want to pray today for my heart, as I can often be a priest and a Levite in times of need, to just count the cost and say it's too much. God, that you would soften our hearts to be like this Samaritan, to reach out and love even people that are not like us, even people that are our enemies, so we might give them life. Jesus, ultimately, we thank you for the life that you gave us and doing what you have called us to do, to do likewise. That you would give up your life, give up and spill your blood so that we might be called your children. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray this morning. Amen.